Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. What I'm going to be doing this week, I'll be reviewing the final episode of 11-22-63, the Hulu adaptation, and go over some Dark Tower movie news that, that kind of popped up this week that I, that I thought that everyone might like to hear. So before I get any further, I just want to apologize. I don't have my microphone this week. Um, I let a friend of mine borrow it. You know, he's, he's starting up his own podcast, and so he's been kind of testing out the waters. And so uh, I, I, rather than waiting to get it back, I wanted to get this episode out while it was still timely. Uh, so it might mean that there's a little bit of a dip in the production quality. So I apologize for that. But I felt that um, you would all rather have a new episode um, rather than wait a few days and uh, get uh, the same content with just a little bit better quality. So for those of you tuning in for the first time, uh, I think that sounds a little bit better. I don't know how it sounds. I don't, I don't know if it sounds any, any better or worse. Um, but I just want to just say that I, I don't have my, my Yeti uh, microphone that I normally do. So that's out of the way. Um, second thing that I want to say is there are spoilers galore in this episode. So if you do not know 112263, either the book or have watched the entirety of the Hulu adaptation, then please note that there are spoilers here. There's spoilers for all of Stephen King's stuff. So just that's that. And if you are tuning in for the first time, uh, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Uh, the original mission statement was that I would review each of his works in the chronological order of publication. And I did that. Uh, so if you're tuning in and I'm reviewing the final episode of 112263, then you can head on back to any of the hundred something episodes for my thoughts and analyses on Stephen King as he has progressed um, as a writer through his, um, his bibliography. And uh, I, I hope that you enjoy. But before I get any further, I just want to. Uh, implore all of you that if you have enjoyed the Stephen King cast over the hundred something episodes that, that, that I've been able to put out um, and you've been interested in my thoughts and you've either agreed with my thoughts or disagreed with my thoughts or just appreciated my my take on the horror genre and, and how it's crafted if you want to see how I'm able to do when dabbling in the horror genre, then I have some uh, some options for you, as I have been fortunate enough to have found uh, four different publications that have accepted my uh, four of my four of my stories, and hopefully soon I'll have have more news on that front. But uh, the four stories that have been accepted for publication are four stories that I believe that you all very much would enjoy being fans of Stephen King, and I'm going to give you some uh, some opportunities to. To seek them out, they can all be purchased through Amazon. Um, either uh, whether you want a uh, ebook or whether or not you want the the, the physical copy, uh, you can get that too for some of them. Uh, so the first story that was accepted was accepted in the pages of Dark Moon Digest, specifically issue number 22, which is one of those op options of of either uh, the electronic copy or the the the, the paper copy. Um, which came in the mail uh, a couple weeks ago. It looks great. It really, really does. There's a lot of great stories in there. My story is entitled Room 207. I'm telling you guys, um, I think that you'll get a kick 
out of, of this particular story. It's, it's, it's very much what you would want out of horror. If you're fans of Stephen King, uh, it, it's uh, very character-based, very mood-based and tone-based. Uh, the setting kind of pops right off the page. So I, just, I think that everything that you like in a Stephen King um, is, is what I was going for there. I think that you'll appreciate it. It was edited by Laurie Michelle and Max Booth III. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to, to, to see that there has been some positive feedback on that particular short story on the Amazon review page. Uh, a couple reviews said that it was particularly unsettling, which I find to be a huge compliment, probably the best compliment that, uh, that could be given, um, because that's what I was going for. So, like I said, I think that you'll enjoy that. I also think that you'll enjoy This World Will Eat You All the Way Up, which can be purchased with a click of a button by heading on over to Nine Tales Told in the Dark, issue number nine, um, published by Bride of Chaos magazine. You can find it on Amazon. And this is a story of, again, it's it's all about, it's character-based, it's two friends, um, and a conflict that is, is brewing between the two of them as they make their way on a road trip, and um, a topic of conversation keeps coming up. Um, between the two of them, and it, it's what happens when uh, when it boils over. And then we have Wax and Wayne, a gathering of witch tales, edited by uh, David T. Neal. And this is a the story that that I wrote uh, is entitled Hopscotch, um, and it really just explores the the life of a thirteen year old girl and the evil that a thirteen year old girl uh, can. Uh, can give to the world and what happens when a darker, bigger, and older evil bites back on 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 the the 13-year-old girl evil. And I think that you guys will get a kick out of that, that that story. It it I had a lot of fun writing it and I think that that's pretty pretty evident in in the text. So um, I don't think that you guys will be too disappointed with it. And also that it just has a ton of stories about about witches and um, I implore all of you to, to head on over to, to to watch the witch if you haven't seen already fans of the the shining the movie will definitely see the, the inspirations there uh, as you watch the story of a family so puritanical they were too puritanical for the the, the Puritans and head out into the wilderness of New England and what happens when their beliefs of witches and Satan come true. It's great, guys. It's great. It, the, the, it's just, oh, you feel like you are there in the New England wilderness in the 1700s and it, or the late 1600s and it, it just creeps you out. And then later this year in August, uh, there will be a magazine entitled Trists of Fate, um, which will publish my uh, existential horror short story, Forget Me Not, and it just really examines relationships and what happens when you are in a relationship, you know, how you start to get defined by the other person in your life, and you, you kind of come up with this shared identity, well, what happens when uh, that reality starts to, to, to break and erode as a breakup happens? Um, what happens to your identity? What happens when when you lose that significant other? Do you, do you lose a part of yourself? Um, that question is explored in Forget Me Not. Okay, guys. Uh, so up next, what I would like to do, I would like to just um, say thank you to everyone that has taken a few moments to contribute uh, a review uh, to iTunes, which has been the number one way to legitimize the Stephen King cast, which makes the Stephen King cast the highest-rated Stephen King uh, podcast out there, um, and I, I just, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, so, 
I just want to read a couple of reviews, the first of which is by uh, J-A-W-S-R-K-S, who writes, great podcast, but beware. And this feedback really, really stuck with me, and I'll talk about it in a second. I really have enjoyed listening to this podcast. They are well put together and informative. His deconstruction of it was amazing. I've read that book a dozen times, and he made me think of things I never thought of. My one complaint is that he throws out spoilers without warning. I understand this with the reviews of a novel, but he will throw in spoilers for other novels that I haven't read yet. Just today, I listened to his review of the TV miniseries 112263. This was the first episode. Um, I've not read the novel. And in reviewing the first episode, he blurted out a major character who will die later and exactly where and when the death will occur. That is very frustrating. Again, I love the podcast, but please be careful of this unless this podcast is only meant for those who have read and seen every work of Kings. So um, that... When I read that uh, review, my heart plummeted that I that I took away a moment from someone without uh, effectively warning them beforehand. So I'm telling you guys, critical feedback is something that, that we all need in our lives, and that was critical feedback that, that really, really stuck with me. So um, hence the, the, the spoiler warning at the top of the episode. I really don't want to, to screw anybody else over. I honestly don't. But I, I will say that from here on out, the Stephen King cast really is designed uh, to be listened to by people that have uh, that 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 have read um, and and know the, the Stephen King works uh, through and through. Um, but I that was something that I I definitely needed to hear. So Jaw Skirks or J W S R K S, thank you so much. And I apologize, honestly, I I am sorry for for doing that to you because that's. That, that's a big, I, I screwed up on that one. I really did it. I, I am sorry. I, I don't, um, I don't like spoilers. I don't like being spoiled on things. And, and the fact that I did that to, to someone, it, it really, it really has stuck with me. So I, I honestly apologize. I'm sorry. Um, then we have that damn hobbit who writes, good job. Being a writer, a hardcore Stephen King fan myself, and a bit of an expert on King, I've come across a few mistakes and a few opinions that I disagree with in this podcast. Despite that, this is the only Stephen King podcast that I've found that really matters. By that, I mean this is the only one with an informed and intelligent host who knows his stuff and can get his points across with effectiveness. I enjoy every episode. So that damn Hobbit, first of all, you should win an award for your uh, your screen name. It's it's pretty good. Um, and thank you for the kind words. Again, um, everyone, uh, you know, I, I don't presume to be the end-all, be-all on Stephen King. Um and uh, that's why I think that's important for, for you to be able to write in and, and share your thoughts and your opinions and areas in which you disagree with me. I, I, I honestly think that it is important. And then we have Transmission Party Music, who writes, Killing It with the King. CR, that's constant reader, um, CR takes all of King's works, even some of the less than stellar movies, and gives them an insightful and crucial rundown worth your time and data to download. So thank you, Transmission Party Music. Um, I really appreciate it. And then we have, I'll finish it up with Ravenclaw81, who writes, best podcast ever. If you are a constant reader, a true Stephen King fan, then you will love this podcast. The Kingisms, uh, covered at the end of each review, are spot on. So, um, so thank you, thank you, Ravenclaw81. So guys, if you haven't done so already, um, honestly, these these iTunes reviews do so much in getting the Stephen King cast out there. And with the Dark Tower in production, with 112263 um, wrapping up 
Um, there is, uh, there, there's a lot of traffic around Stephen King, so I would like that if anyone typed in Stephen King in an iTunes feed that the, the Stephen King cast um, comes up front and center. So the more reviews that you can write, the more legitimate this podcast becomes, the higher up on the, the iTunes library search it, it, it stays. So um, it'll just take a moment, uh, and I honestly, I, I, I really would appreciate it. And anyone listening in any country other than the States, the way that iTunes is designed, I, can, I personally can only look at iTunes reviews from the States, and I'm very curious as to what the iTunes um, reviews looks like from other countries. So if you could just take a couple screenshots of the iTunes review page and send them to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com, I very much would be interested in seeing what, what the... Uh, what the other countries are, are saying about the podcast. Um, so that, that's my request out there. Okay, so up next, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read some listener email because, as I just said a minute ago, listener emails are, are where it's at. Jennifer writes, Dear Constant Reader, I've just listened to your Top 10 Villains episode, and I have to say amen to your number one pick, and in light of recent events, I think that King would probably agree. I've been thinking a lot about Big Jim Rennie, Greg Stilson and Buster Keaton in the past few months, and it's terrifying. I'm curious, if you had to record this episode a year ago, do you think that your number one would be the same? It's a great question. So again, um, if you haven't listened to this particular episode, I've been doing top 10 episodes, um, just top 10 Stephen King heroes, top 10 Stephen King villains, top 10 Stephen King short stories, blah, blah, blah. Um, in the top 10 Stephen King villains, um, spoiler alert, number one, I said was Big Jim Rennie. Um, and the rationale behind that was because the idea that, that Donald Trump has gained so much momentum in this country um, in a day and age where we should be looking at things with logic and clarity and scientific fact and um, rationalization and um, enlightenment. And we're not getting that. And we're getting someone that is lying through his teeth um, acts like a spoiled two-year-old, um, cannot be caught in a lie, even though you provide the, the evidence and the proof to him, just continues to lie, throws temper tantrums, insults women, insults minorities, is xenophobic, um, the, and who clearly uh, is not out there for the good of a country, but simply is there to, to build a brand, his own brand, um, and will use the American public uh, to do so um, at the expense of the, 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 the safety of this country and the safety of the world, um, despite the fact that the entire world right now um, thinks that, that this country is, um, is very dangerous because of what we have done to politics and how we have entertained, like turned politics into entertainment. Um, this really looks more terrifying to me than any dystopian fiction that's out there. This is something straight out of The Running Man, something out of a Stephen King um, short story or a novel. And when I have talked about politics before on the show, I have done so with a little bit more, um, I want to say, uh, um, unbiased, um, but, uh, or unbiasedness. I just, I haven't, I haven't tried to be very overt, but I'm kind of over that at this point because I'm just, look, I mean, I clearly I'm, I'm very liberal and it's not as though I don't, I, I, I understand some some aspects of um, of of being a Republican, being conservative. I think that there are great conversations to, to be had, and I think there's worth within the GOP. I'm not going to deny that, but I mean, come on, guys. I mean, Donald Trump is not it. He's not the answer, and and um, there's so much 
evidence to, to point that he's just not the guy for the job. First of all, why do you want someone to to run, to to get a job where he's never even held any sort of similar job in the first place? Like, he, he's not qualified. He, he has to have some sort of of, of background to, to do this job. He doesn't have it. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I, before I get on, on, on a tangent here, and I'm already going on that tangent, I, I just... I would love to have a Republican in the White House um, that that kind of offers the the um, not not an antidote. That's definitely the wrong word, but a just a different opinion, a different philosophy. I think that that's healthy for the country, um, but it, it can't be this extreme. It, it can't be this hateful. It just it can't be this bigoted. It can't be this um, uh, this unintelligent, uneducated. It it can't be this. It can't be this. It can't be. It can't. And it can't be because we've seen what happens in fiction. And this is why fiction is so important, because it blurs um, what we imagine and what is real. And in this blur, we have seen what happens. We've seen it. Uh, you know, I mean, and Stephen King is just an example. I mean, with Big Jim Rennie, we've seen it. We've seen it with Greg Stilson. And on my iTunes feed, my Twitter handle, and my Facebook, um, you know, I've, I've put out some, some Make America Great Again uh, screenshots with Greg Stilson. It's it's scary how accurate it was and what the Dead Zone came out in eighty one or eighty four or something like that. But it's dead on. I mean, Greg Stilson was a buffoon in the eyes of every single person that encountered him, and every single person thought that Greg Stilson could not ever gain any sort of power because people would see right through that buffoonery. But Greg Stilson spoke to a particular contingent of the American public who liked it who thought that it was entertaining, who thought that um, the man was a man of the people because he, he, he told it like it was and he entertained us and it's happening for real before our eyes. Um, and it's, it's scary stuff. So my number one pick was, was Big Jim Rennie, who I, I felt was the, the refined version of the Greg Stilson character. Um, and like I said in that in that episode, we just have to watch out in this world because there are big Jim Rennies, and unfortunately, one is is very well maybe the president of the United States, and it's a very very scary thought. You know, in the end of eleven twenty two sixty three, we uh, Jake goes back to a dystopian, blasted, bleak future that's burned out, um, and that very well could be the future of America. Whether whether or not it's a physical burnout. Um, a, a physical blasted landscape or just a an ideological and emotional one where just America just becomes shattered hollow out husk of of greatness uh, that, that it once had been we're better than this is what I'm trying to say we're better than this so let's uh, let's aim higher guys let's let's um, let's not let's not try and be the, the big Jim Rennies of the world I guess is what we can say. Let's try and be the the Alan Pangborns, please. Um, but no, a year ago, I probably wouldn't have picked Big Jim Rennie as the number one. Um, I, I probably wouldn't have. I probably would have picked either Pennywise or, or Randall Flagg, but not not Big Jim Rennie. Um, so uh, let's see. So Jennifer continues. Rennie is probably the most memorable part of Under the Dome and all of King's characters. I hate him the most. Um, spoiler alert, guys. Uh, I was really upset by his death because I needed him to see everyone in Chester's Mill and the rest of the world turn against him. I needed to be confronted by his own hypocrisy and face blame for the destruction he had caused. But I guess in real life, we don't always get comeuppance. And for a character so deeply rooted in reality, 
His death is probably fitting. Facing the consequences of his actions probably wouldn't matter to him anyways. He would either spin the story to shift the blame or flatly deny the truth. I think the worst, worst punishment is his ignorance and the fact that he has to live in his own skin. It doesn't matter how he sees himself. The survivors of Chester's Mill see reality, and they will tell the world, even if he's not alive, to see it. History will remember him. I was excited about Under the Dome television series until I watched the first episode. I have numerous problems with that show and felt a little bit like the yellow card man trying to keep everything straight in my head. My biggest problem was that I just hated the casting of Hank from Breaking Bad's Big Jim. What? Hank is one of my all-time favorite television characters and for the same actor to play the character that I despise? The disconnect was just too much. My husband was still on board for the first season, but I shifted over to hate-watching very early on. Um, now, I thought, personally, that uh, Dean Norris was inspired casting for Big Jim Rennie. I knew that he would be able to play a arrogant blowhard out for his own good because i mean hank did have shades of that uh within himself um on breaking bad so i i knew that he'd be able to play it i i just like anything else in 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 under the dome it just it failed to live up to the potential of the source material jennifer continues i'm loving your 112263 views and i find myself mostly agreeing with you sometimes i can get down with franco as jake but sometimes i feel like he's acting in a high school play and speaking of plays, Of Mice and Men sections were my favorite things about the book, and I was disappointed to see it reduced to a single sentence in the miniseries. And Jennifer, amen on that. And then she continues, My Cotets. So in one of the, the previous episodes, um, I, I shared a listener email um, who said, if I were to, to comprise a cotet based on Stephen King characters, who would that cotet be comprised of if I were able to do the same of psychics? Who would the psychics be? So I think that this is a great exercise. I would love for everyone to participate. Um, Jennifer writes that her psychics would be adult Danny Torrance, adult Charlie McGee, Carrie White, um, Abra Stone. Um, so there's our psychics. And then our gunslingers, Alan Pangborn, Nick Hopewell, um, Dolores Claiborne, Larry Underwood. Uh, my honorable mention is kind of a cheat because he's a what-might-have-been character. I would love to see who Harold Lauder would have become if he stayed in Boulder and grown into Hawk. Or the Harold Larry followed across the country. He's the gunslinger who got away. And I realize that most people would probably disagree with me, but I will not disagree with you. When I read that, that really took me by surprise. I mean, that's one that I don't think that any one of us would have expected, but remember that... Harold Lauder, who's probably one of Stephen King's most hated and reviled characters that he's ever created, also was the character who at one point showed that he could have been the best of us. He's the foil to Larry Underwood. Larry, who um, uh, started out kind of on the bottom and uh, on the rocks, being very selfish and, and wound up becoming selfless. And um, there was a moment where the, their their journey was kind of flipped and there was a moment where uh harold was going to redeem himself but then he just gave in the temptation that's too bad but yes he definitely could have been the best of all of us and i think that he would have been a great gunslinger um especially one that if he continued his path of greatness and he became good because he he would realize where he came from he would have that much more empathy and that much more um self-awareness uh, and just kind of control and probably peace about himself and then the, the sense that he kind of has to make up um, for sins that he has committed in the past. That's a great, great idea. Love it. 
And she continues, thanks again for all of your hard work and thoughtful reviews. I really thought that after four long emails, I had said my piece, but you just keep on inspiring discussion. Also, I'm excited to check out your short stories. Thank you for letting us know about those publications. Have a great day, Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you for writing in again, and thank you for um, seeking out the short stories. Uh, I, I hope that you like them. And guys, if you have checked out the short stories and want to just send me an email and give me any sort of critical feedback, whether the feedback is, yeah, it was fun, um, or dude, give it up. Uh, either way, I, I, um, I really would, I would like to know. Thank you. And then up next we have Carl who writes, um, Carl who writes again, um, he writes, Hey again, still really enjoying the podcast. Uh, please keep up the awesome work. I was kind of intrigued by the last episode's listener's email and formed my own quartet. So again, going back to what I just discussed here, they are in no particular order. Jack Torrance. Much like Father Callahan, maybe this could be an effort to gain some sort of redemption on Jack's part. It's not like he was actually a real villain, but merely a vessel for the overlook. Um, I have to agree with you on this and go with Alan Pangborn as well. He is the epitome of a gunslinger in my book. And instead of Larry Underwood, I'd pick Stu Redman. In a way, he kind of reminds me of Roland, a man of action and yet few words. The last position holding the anchor would have to be Dale Barbara, a natural-born leader. I couldn't really come up with a quartet of psychics, but I think I would include Carrie White in that fold and was surprised that you didn't. Could you imagine her and Danny working together? Pretty scary and awesome at the same time. Always a pleasure, Carl. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I'm surprised that I didn't mention Carrie myself. I know that in, in the past, um, when I talked about um, the breakers uh, at, at the Devar Toy, I... Um, would have liked to have seen like alternate reality versions of of characters that we have seen before like Carrie White and Charlie McGee so I'm surprised that I didn't include that myself in my own draft pick and up next we have Lauren who writes Dear Stephen Kingcast I was actually intending to write this email for quite a while but let's say that real life got in the way I think that the idea one of the listeners brought up about psychics and gunslingers is a brilliant idea in terms of our four gunslingers I would choose Mike Anderson from Storm of the Century. This was actually a character I needed some time to warm up to, but once I did, he became one of my personal favorites. I chose him because he'd know how to keep the team together in a crisis, whether it be small crises. I'm thinking of the beginning of Storm of the Century when he's trying to keep the customers from panicking, or when he helps Pippa's head out of the stairs, or large ones. He just refuses to be intimidated by Linoge, even though he ultimately gets punished for it. Interesting thing is, I don't know if I'm misinterpreting or not, but I think even Linoge has some degree of respect for him. Like he's the only person on the island, except for the kids, he doesn't treat like the dirt beneath his shoe. Not that it saves Mike, but I get this feeling that he's the only one Linoge doesn't have a sort of withering contempt for, even with the you cheated on the midterm thing exam, or midterm exam thing, which I agree with you, compared to everyone else, Mike pretty much gets an F in actually doing something horrible. He mostly makes a sarcastic comment about telling it to Ralphie as a bedtime story before moving on to Jack Carver. Even when he's talking with Mike, he acknowledges that Mike is on the short end in regards to generally being a good person. The rest of Little Tall is as corrupt as far as Linoge is concerned, and I have a feeling what got revealed in Storm of the Century is the tip of a massive iceberg. Linoge even says as much. Mike is really the only good person on that island in Linoge's eyes, even though, though that doesn't save him. I'm wondering if the whole lottery wasn't also to prove a point to Mike, that there is no good on Little Tall Island. Tragic thing is, besides Mike losing his son, in a way, Linoge also broke his optimism and belief. 
which is a pretty screwed up view of your enemy, I think. It was one of those reasons I loved Storm of the Century. Seeing how Calm Fior and Tim Daly played off one another was just a delight. I'd put their rivalry up there with Freddy and Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street and Dr. Loomis and Michael Myers from the Halloween series. Uh, and back on topic, I think besides his ability to keep cool under pressure, it might also give Mike the closure he didn't get in Storm of the Century. He'd be kind of like Father Callahan, having his faith broken because of something that was basically done to him, cut off from Little Tall as much as Callahan was from his church, and then having to get his faith restored. Damn, Lauren, that is, um, that is legit. That is a great explanation for your thoughts right there. This is not one that I would have thought of myself, but I would love to see Stephen King pick up the story of Mike Anderson. Um, that, that's incredible. And everything that you said about Storm of the Century here, um, it makes me appreciate it in a new light. Uh, it's awesome, awesome. And up next, we have Dolores Claiborne. She would be one hell of an amazing gunslinger. Protectiveness. She did, after all, mostly kill Joe just because of what he did to their kids, including molesting Selena. Cunning. How she orchestrated Joe's death. A desire to do what's right, such as sticking up for somebody that Vera mistreated. And general badassery. I think, in a way, she and Mike could bond over basically being cut off from their community. Plus... Dolores would have a sort of stabilizing presence that would keep the group together. And it should be noted what she's referring to here is that um, both Mike and Dolores um, lived on Little Tall Island. And number three here is cheating a little here, but a tie between Alan Pangborn and Beverly Marsh. Alan because he's faced off against evil before and won, and all the shadow puppets no less. And Beverly because, well, she's one hell of a good shot and incredibly brave. And like Mike and Dolores, Alan would do a great job of holding the group together. Probably some unusual choices here, and again, cheating, but a tie between Jesse Burlingame and Holly Gibney. I know you're not a fan of Mr. Mercedes, but I admit I have a soft spot for Holly, and she is a badass in her own right, with the managing to stop Brady from blowing up the Round Here concert, and we see what happens exactly when you make Holly angry enough. Plus, she's great with tech. If our weird little band ran into a technical issue, I think that Holly would be able to sort it out. And I picked Jessie because of her strength and determination and resourcefulness. She sort of shows that you don't need a gun in your hand to be strong. The way she got out of Gerald's handcuffs is pretty amazing in of itself. And if they ever ran into a problem, I think that Jessie could get creative and think of a way out that would probably work. Um, and these are just, what what's great is that I would love to see a story with all of these characters because they're so different from one another. You know, when, when I crafted my team, like I think that they're all kind of similar characters, but this is... This is great. Um, the, the, the interplay among them all would, would be would make for, for great reading. And in terms of psychics, I would choose Abra Stone. Um, absolutely loved her character when I first read Doctor Sleep. I think that Stephen King really captured what it meant to be a uh, preteen teenage girl without going into stereotypes that usually go with those characters. Um, which is definitely no easy feat. And she kicked a lot of butt. Plus, considering how well she held up against a true knot, I think that she could hold up really well here. Agreed. Two, Danny Torrance. He's faced down the Overlook Hotel in one. He's faced down the true knot in one. This guy's basically got experience with that sort of stuff. He's like a veteran. Plus, I'd love to see a series of him and Abra, probably in his 50s or so, her probably in her late teens or early 20s, just hunting down some downright evil supernatural threats and just kicking their butts. I'd love to see that too. Charlie McGee. Unfortunately, I have not finished Firestarter, but judging from what I have read so far, I think that she could definitely hold her own as well. Considering the amount of power she has as a kid, imagine what she could do against a whole legion of the forces of the Red. 
Lois from insomnia, the ability to see auras and such could definitely come in handy. Plus, Lois was a really kick-ass character in Insomnia, one of my favorite Stephen King women, which I was actually wondering, do you think you could do a top 10 Stephen King women list? I'd love to hear your takes. And I think that she could definitely hold her own in the group. Uh, anyway, those are my takes on Gunslingers and Psychics. It took a while for me to put them together, but those are my takes. I'm definitely curious to see what the others' takes are as well. Sincerely, Lauren. Lauren, this was a great email. A lot of thought went into it, and it's making me think a lot as well. In terms of top ten, um, I can't, I, I can't commit to a top ten Stephen King woman list, um, but I'm not gonna rule it out. However, if anybody else wants to um, write in your top ten Stephen King women list, uh, what would it be? Um, and, and and definitely tell me why, because I would love to get your thoughts on that as well. Okay, guys, so that's all I have for emails this week, um, and we're just over 30 minutes. What I want to do now is I want to share some Dark Tower stuff that has come up, um, because uh, when I'm recording this, it is April April 4th. Uh, on April 1st, April Fool's Day, some news broke about uh, some Dark Tower movie news, and it was not an April Fool's Day joke. Uh, it was legitimate, and um, when reading it, I found another article that I want to share with you. Basically, two articles from Ain't It Cool, um, Ain't it cool News, uh, which you can find at ain'titcool.com, um, which kind of breaks down the, the, the script for the, uh, the, the Dark Tower movie that will be coming out, and I just wanted to, to share it with you. So the first article was published um, on March 2nd, um, and the, the, the publisher here, or the, the, the writer of this article, was Quint. Uh, and Quint writes, Ahoy, squirts, Quint here. I wanted to give you guys a little background on the upcoming Dark Tower film. I was lucky enough to get a chance to read what Akiva Goldsman and Jeff Pinkner turned in back when Ron Howard was still trying to get Stephen King's epic a bit uh, weirdness up on screen and have been sitting on my opinion for nearly a year. When Howard left and Nikolai Arcel came on board, I figured that that was... I figured that was that for this draft, but since Arcel and King have now said that the Goldsman draft was the foundation of the film they will begin shooting in seven weeks, I figured it was time to dust off the cobwebs of my memory and talk a little bit about what you should expect from this adaptation of Stephen King's magnum opus. A word of warning, though. There are a lot of unknowns surrounding this project right now. I've heard from sources who have told me that Arcel did a pretty hefty rewrite so it's possible that all of the pro-Goldsman draft talk in the EW interview was politics, saving face for Goldsman, who is still a producer on the film, and much of what I've read is outdated. However, if it wasn't political shoulder-squeezing and they're building on top of this draft, then you'll have a good idea of what to expect from the film, which is supposedly sees theaters in less than a year. Still crazy how fast that turnaround is. I won't go overboard with the spoilers just in case this draft ends up being close to what we see next January, but that doesn't mean this whole article is going to be nothing but vague critiques. So, so proceed with caution. In that EW interview, King said he insisted that the movie opens with his famous first line, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. That would make for our first big change from this draft, which does not begin um, in a desert but in a seemingly happy suburban neighborhood. The man in black walks the Norman Rockwell streets as kids play and adults sit on porches sipping drinks. This is Divertoy, 
which means nothing to non-readers, but fans will know it and get a handle on why they're starting here. For non-readers, I'll say that there's a mysterious structure called the Dark Tower. The Man in Black is hell-bent on destroying it, and this town is an instrument to do that, although this wasn't introduced until much later in the series. If the movie is indeed starting off with the Man in Black fled across the desert and the Gunslinger followed, then we can assume this is out. How could the Man in Black be fleeing if he's hanging in the peaceful Devartois? It also means that we're very likely to meet our main character, Roland, earlier than this draft, which doesn't happen until about almost 15 pages in. This is all good news because the first act is the worst part of Goldsman and Pickner's adaptation. They start it weird and then spend time with young Jake in modern, modern day-ish 2011 in this draft, New York. Jake is having nightmares about what's going on in Devartois and is seeing a psychiatrist because he feels torn between his own world and what the adults in his life believe is an imaginary world. The psychiatrist chat is hands down the worst part of this script. They totally play to the cheap seats. Within five minutes of the movie, they have Jake fully explain exactly what the Dark Tower is while talking to a stuffy psychiatrist in an office somewhere. In other words, they reveal the mystery of the title in the most boring way possible. It'd be like the end of the pilot of Lost. It, like, at the end of the pilot of Lost, Charlie says, Guys, where are we? And someone sits him down and explains exactly what the island is and what that strange creature in the trees used to be. Or, in a more relevant uh, comparison, uh, and this is me speaking here, it would be like if we see these great superheroes that we've never seen on screen for the first time, um, not through larger-than-life uh, introductions to the viewer, but through, uh, through video cam footage cobbled together by Lex Luthor, and then who happens to give them not just introductions to us, the viewer, but actually names them Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Cyborg, and The Flash. Of course, this is a condemnation on the... Um, movie that just came out, Batman vs. Superman. So, uh, Quint continues, uh, but we don't have to worry about that anymore. Hopefully, I just want it to be on the record that it was a stupid decision that completely undercuts any ability to wow the audience with discovery as Roland's quest unfolds. Another tidbit from the EW interview was the revelation that a good amount of the film takes place in our world, which threw many fans through for a loop. In the books, a lot of the time is spent crossing between Midworld and ours, known as Keystone Earth, but none of this happens in the first book, so what gives? Jake is what gives. Goldsman and Pickner decide to fold in Jake's journey to Roland's world from the Wastelands, complete with the fight with the Guardian in the old haunted house, with his entry into the Gunslinger. They also brought in elements from Drawing of the Three, such as the Lobstrosity attack and Roland getting sick, which has the third act being Roland and Jake in 2011 New York looking for medicine and evading the Crimson King's henchmen, who are animals in human masks known as the Tahin or the Low Men. The Manai are also introduced. I'd say the breakdown is about 60-40 mid-world to our world. If you're a constant reader, your head is probably spinning a little bit right now. Lots of changes, but take my word for it not to get too hung up on those changes. They make the very smart decision to start Roland off with the Horn of Eld, which is something I've been saying the adaptation needs to do since J.J. Abrams got the rights way back when. And guys, a lot of you have said the same by writing into me that if you start off with the, the Horn of Eld, it's just it's a good way to make necessary changes because it, it, it still has a link to what we've read, but at the same time, it is a, a, a bit of fan service to acknowledge that we can go off on a new path. 
and Quint continues here. This small change allows them to kind of do what Abrams and his team did when they rebooted Star Trek. You can change things now, and as long as you get the characters right and make it recognizably the same universe, you have a license to make any tweak you want. So what of the Gunslinger book does make it? The showdown in Tall takes up most of the first act, and Roland's reluctant bonding with Jake is most of the second, but it is done much different than it is in the book. Jake's not a confused child who doesn't know why he's there. He's the one on a mission, convinced he's meant to help Roland find the Dark Tower, which is something Roland has no interest in. He's only after revenge. He has given up protecting the tower in order to focus on killing the man in black. This Roland is a shell of a man. He has his feelings on lockdown, much like the Roland from the books, but he's also worn out, defeated. It's an interesting take that took me a little while to warm up to, but I like how they used his growing feelings for Jake to kind of set him back on the path. Jake is almost more of a central figure in this draft than Roland himself. He's not only Roland's moral compass, but he's also a MacGuffin. They give Jake telepathic powers, which sounds silly, but it's not like he's throwing people around with his mind or anything. He sees things, is sensitive to thin spots between the worlds, etc. They even call it the Shine, a nod to King's Shining. He's powerful enough to be of interest to the man in black who wants to use him to destroy the Dark Tower. Um, I'm going to insert myself here. I think that that's great. I think that's a great way to, to, to use Jake. And also in, in line with the later interpretation of Jake, who started to have elements of the touch himself, much like Elaine. And so uh, Quint continues, um, while I have issues with much of the script, I have to give them credit for nailing the Roland-Jake relationship. In a relatively short amount of time, you feel that Jake sees Roland as a father figure and that adoration touches something deep inside Roland's stony heart. They also get another important aspect right. They peppered the world with King references. Before shared universes were popular, it was the Dark Tower series that blew my mind. It was the linchpin. Uh, for all of King's stories. Characters from other books wandered in and out of this story, including the man in black who was also known as Randall Flagg in The Stand. I know as references to It, The Stand, Pet Cemetery, Hearts in Atlantis, The Mist, Carrie, Firestarter, and The Talisman. None of them seem force, but added flavor to the world. And I'm going to insert myself again. That's awesome. And I've been talking about this for a while, guys. I think that's important to throw those Stephen King Easter eggs in there to... It just makes it that much uh, rich a meal uh, to ingest. And then uh, Quint continues, We can only help uh, hope that that carries over to the movie that Arcel makes. It's the one series where references are more than fan service, but actually important to the unfolding plot. The last big question for fans of the book, do we get the there are other, words, other worlds than these moment? Yes, but in a much different way than you would expect. I'm still turning the mo moment over in my mind, trying to figure out what it could mean for the end of this turn of the Wheel of Ka. Fans know this is a crucial moment in Roland's journey, and I think the way they did it in this draft could very possibly give us a different outcome than we saw in the novels. Sorry for the vagueness on this aspect, but it's a big moment, and I don't want to be the asshole to ruin it for somebody. Hopefully it was clear enough for readers of the book to ken what I was getting at. So, looking at this almost two-year-old draft, what can I assume makes it through to the shooting script? I'm guessing the structure will be pretty close to what I read. The Jake and Roland stuff is strong, and is the emotional heart of the story, so I bet that will remain the focus. Nothing about Roland's backstory, like his training with Court, was in this draft, and I doubt we'll see any of that in the eventual film either. King said that they're still holding the young Roland stuff for a possible TV series, which makes sense, so don't expect any of that to be more than mentioned in the movies. 
The Tahin are the stormtroopers of the Crimson King, the big bad, the man in black's boss, and it sounds like they're going to be in even more of the shooting draft than the one that we've been discussing the last few thousand words, considering they're announcing Abby Lee is playing a Tahin named Tirana, who didn't appear in the story until the final book. Deadline promises that she's the star of the Gunslinger, but I don't see how that could possibly be the case unless they're going off the reservation. That's a possibility, but if I were a betting man, I'd say they're filling the town of Tull with Tahin instead of ignorant people of the wastes from the book, and that Tirana will be the alley role, someone who gets close to Roland before tragedy strikes. That way Roland can do what he does in that town and not be as much as a monster. If that's not the case, I have no idea how she'll play a major part of the story without taking away from Jake and Roland's crucial bonding time. Whatever happens up with Abby Lee's character, I can all but guarantee she's not the new Susanna, which has been floated about by fans. In this draft, Eddie and Susanna do not pop, but are hinted at via a tarot deck. If my hunch is correct, and they're keeping the basic structure of the Goldsman-Pinkner draft, then they're saving Eddie and Detta Odetta Susanna for the drawing of the three, which is where they belong anyway. I'm not sure if they're going to keep the Jake the MacGuffin or reverse course a bit, but I'm sure the heart of the film is still going to be his relationship with Roland. With someone like Idris Elba filling the boots of Roland to Shane, they're going to have to get someone really great for Jake, and this was written right before um, they cast it. They did cast Jake. And since they're not chewing these films back-to-back, -back, I think they have to go young. You cast a 12-year-old for the first movie, he's going to be a full-on teenager in the second. I think they have to go for a Jacob Tremblay. That's a kid from The Room. Or Room. That's who I would try to lock down if it was me. We want whomever it is to still be a kid by the time the series actually comes to a close. God help me, I'm actually optimistic about this iteration of the Dark Tower. I mean, I'd be a little pissed off if I knew that the Goldsman Pigner draft was the shooting draft, but there's enough good in it that I don't hate it being used as the foundation of Nikolai Arcel's version of the Gunslinger. I'm mighty curious to see what direction Arcel and the team are going in. I've heard some of the prep work has been righteous, but I don't know anything specific. McConaughey is the man in black, and Elba as Roland is perfect casting so far. They have a shot at making something very special with this one, and as long as they don't fall in the same traps Goldman and Pinker did with playing to the cheap seats at the expense of the mystery of the story. While I don't have all the answers, I hope this piece sheds some light on what the eventual Dark Tower movie will shape up as. It's a hell of a task adapting this crazy story for the big screen, but as long as they keep it weird and make us care for our core quartet, they could have something very special on their hands. And that is an article by Quint on Ain't It Cool News. And then um, on April 1st, uh, he wrote again, he wrote, I know it's not exactly the kind of article that automatically fails the bullshit test on April Fool's Day, but still, today's the day when every single thing you read on the internet is suspect. I promise all my info here is sourced and not in any way associated with this prank holiday that has been run into the ground. I want to talk about the Dark Tower. You might remember that I wrote a breakdown of the Akiva Goldsman Jeff Pinkner draft about a month ago, which I just read to you all. When compiling that article, I also wondered how much of that script was making its way into new director Nikolai Arcel's movie. Now I have a better understanding of that. Let's talk about Mad Max Fury Road's Abby Lee. When Deadline broke her casting, they said that she was the female lead of the Dark Tower, which confused a lot of fans. She was playing a character called Tirana, one of the servants of the Crimson King, who pops up in a minor way in the last book. So how could she be the lead of this film? The short answer is, she's not. She's a glorified cameo, popping up in Divar Toy and working with Pimley Prentice, the guy in charge of the quaint little suburb that hides an evil secret. I'm told she has a few scenes, and that's it. Maybe Deadline thought because there aren't many female roles in this one that she's automatically the lead? Probably not. 
The Manai Village Elder is still in play, and she has way more scenes than Tirana. I've been asking several sources how much of Goldman's draft made it into Anders Thomas Jensen's rewrite, and I've heard everything from a lot of it to there was a page one rewrite. From what I've been able to piece together, the former is more accurate. Young Jake is still the main character. I've been told he's being considered the co-lead of the movie, and my understanding is that the structure is more or less the same as the Goldsman Pinkner draft, meaning the focus is Jake trying to find a way from our world to mid-world and being pursued by the man in black for his power, which could be used to destroy the Dark Tower and free the big bad of the story. I'm hoping what Jensen has been able to add to the Goldsman Pinkner draft is a little bit of the awe and mystery of what the tower is instead of explaining the entire goddamn thing to the audience in the first five minutes via a therapy session. It sounds like the structure of that reviewed draft is for sure still the movie they're making, folding in the Jake Guardian confrontation from the Wastelands and Roland's quest for medicine and our world from the drawing of the three. I'm not 100% against that. I just hope that they really think about the characters, especially Roland. Make sure he's where they want him to be. A lot of fans were upset at the mention in my breakdown that he had given up his quest for the tower. That adds emotional weight to his relationship with Jake, since it's the kid who puts him back on the path. But it's such a dramatic retooling of a core concept of the character that they could be trading down instead of up with that change. Unless my sources were mistaken, the plan is to still have Eddie and Detta Odetta for the next film, which means that all the Aaron Paul rumors resurfacing were not true. Where there'll be a next film, Sony's being very cautious with this one. The budget is on the low end for a studio film, paltry when you consider this is supposed to be a franchise kickoff, and they're not committing to the full-on simultaneously film TV plan just yet. They're dipping their toes into the murky waters of this crazy story. Can't say I'm surprised, but I hope they don't F it up by being so unsure. I suppose you could say I'm nervously excited. I'm nervous they're taking so many liberties, but excited by the casting. McConaughey as Walter, the man in black, and Idris Elba as Roland's ridiculously great casting in my mind. If the kid, Tom Taylor, nails Jake, I can roll with some of the creative changes. I just want the core group of characters, my beloved quartet, to work on screen. So that's the update. Abby Lee is in no way the main character, and the structure of the Goldsman Pinkner draft I outlined a month ago has not changed. What do you folks think? And that is uh, from Quint again. Um, so that's a lot to chew on, guys. Um, and I don't know how you all feel. I know that when it comes to adaptations, there's two camps. I mean, there's those that, that don't mind changes, and there are those that don't want changes at all. I fall into the I don't mind changes as long as that there's a truth to it. Um, and the fact that there's the, the Horn of Eld, uh, I think that that's a great way to kind of do what's best for a movie. And with what he said about there is a go then, there are other worlds than these, but it's different, um, that makes me feel as though Roland's the one that drops. And perhaps he's sacrificing himself so that Jake may live um, and he redeems himself. And then in Drawing of the Three, maybe it's Jake who's the one that is pulling Detta and Eddie. And the third person he would pull maybe would be Roland. And um, this is the redemption of Roland. Um, that would be such a great way to show how faithful it actually is to the text by showing us that really what they're doing is telling what's happening on the next go-around of the cycle of Ka 
and not merely adapting the cycle of Ka or the, the, this revolution of Ka that we read about over a period of 20-something years um, in the pages of the Dark Tower series. I, I think that that would be really, really cool. I also like the, the idea that Jake is an active character here rather than a passive one, that Jake is the one that's pursuing Roland, that Jake is the one that's trying to get into Midworld, and the fact that we have the Man in Black specifically after Jake, that in this sense that Jake is a breaker and the, the Man in Black is after him the way that he was after, um, or the, the, the Crimson King was after uh, Tyler Marshall in the pages of Black House and what have you. I, I like that. I'm fine with that. I have no issue with that. And that kind of fits into the theory that I shared um, a few episodes back where I, I imagine that we would get the, the Tahin and the, the Cantoy in there kind of as the, the orcs to uh, the Crimson King's Sauron. And I'm fine with that. I think that that is a great way to really tie in Stephen King's expanded mythos. Because remember that when Stephen King wrote these books originally, he didn't have the idea of the Crimson King. He didn't have the idea of um, the, the low men. And so now that we have the completed work, we are able to, not we, but um, powers that be are able to, to craft a story in which the... Um, you're able to draw from from these iterations, so I'm fine with that, guys. I, I am reading this; it gets me excited. I can see how it might get you a little freaked out, but it gets me excited, that's for sure. Okay, um, now at an hour, um, I think it's time to review the uh, the final episode, eleven twenty two sixty three. So the uh, we're off to the races as we begin with Jake and Sadie speeding through nineteen sixty three. So again, as I have said before, the production design on this show is wonderful. I mean, the, the 60s look vibrant and tactile. It is such a rich setting that you feel like you can just reach the screen and touch it. The past keeps pushing back and it gives Jake an ominous warning in the form of Frank Dunning, who appears in the crowd. And a second later, Sadie is grabbed by her ex-husband. It's a creepy visual that feels very Stephen King. So much that I'm surprised that he himself didn't dream it up in the book. Adds a nice extra little touch to the tension and adds a shit is getting crazy element. This is one up when a car comes out of nowhere, its only purpose to seemingly run down the couple. After the credits, we pan in on Oswald himself, who creepily tells himself, They will know your name. And as Jake and Sadie break into the book depository to run up the stairs, did anybody catch the Stephen King Easter egg scribble on the wall? Eagle-eyed fans will be rewarded when they see that the word red rum is right there. It's a nice little touch, adding a little bit of menace for those who know the meaning of that word. Gotta say, um, this moment is pretty tense. The seconds tick-tock closer to that fateful moment. The motorcade makes its way down the street. Jake and Sadie race up the stairs. Oswald steadies his gun. And Jake stops Lee before he gets a chance to fire the fateful bullet. Unlike the book, which resulted with the immediate execution of Oswald, we get a little cat and mouse in the depository, resulting in a fistfight between the two, which ends with Jake managing to shoot Oswald through the heart with his own rifle. And then comes the realization that Sadie has been shot by one of Lee's wayward bullets. They have a by-the-numbers goodbye, and that's it. That's all she wrote for Sadie. And after Jake is taken away by police and the G-Men, there's our second King Easter egg. As I mentioned, Old Sparky. Fans of the Green Mile will be able to tell you what that means. Jake takes center stage in the new timeline as he's shepherded through a sea of reporters clamoring to know the man who seemingly took a shot at the president. In the interrogation room, he goes through his story. Jake, knowing the facts of history, 
has a, a one up on the Dallas police officer and Agent Hosty and starts turning the heat on them. This was one of my favorite scenes from the book, and I think that it works very well here. And then, despite Sadie's death, Jake's mission is all worth it when the President and the First Lady call him to say thank you. As Jake prepares to head back to Lisbon, he dreams he sees Sadie waiting for him, reading from here to eternity, as she was on the day that they met. Again, from here to eternity is the relationship touchstone that defines their relationship in this adaptation rather than the dance from the book. And the title is one that resonates with the time-traveling nature of the plot itself. Back in Lisbon, Jake makes his way to the rabbit hole and enters into a blasted American future. It's an aspect from the book that I absolutely did not expect to see adapted in the show. And hey guys, Easter egg number three, Captain Trips is graffitied on a nearby building. I was so happy to see that. He runs into Harry Dunning, who is drastically different from the janitor he was before Jake left. We see that Jake's involvement changing the past of both Harry and JFK has had significant results. Harry here remembers Jake as the man who saved his family and murdered his father. It's a nice moment, guys. One that's not in the book. In the book, we had a similar conversation between Jake and Harry's sister. Here, I think that's more potent for it to happen between these two. From Harry, we get a condensed history lesson on a new timeline, which is full of refugee camps, violence, and the bombs. Here, Jake realizes that instead of fixing things, he has made things worse, and, and goes one more time through the rabbit hole. And it's exactly what it always was, except now Jake sees Sadie in the car full of girls. Remember that earlier in the show, Sadie revealed that she had been in Lisbon before. So this isn't a dream. This is legit, and Jake pursues her to the restaurant and proceeds to rattle on the details of her life, which, despite the fact that she's giggling through it, has to be creepy. Um, and I didn't take the time to go back and watch the first episode again, so I don't remember, but um, let me know, guys. Uh, let me know what, what this means uh, and whether or not Sadie actually was in the... Um, in the convertible that rode by. I, I don't remember it one way or another, uh, so I don't know if it's kind of a, a retcon or whether or not she was always there right under our nose the entire time. I, I'm kind of hoping that the answer is yes, um, and I would like for them to have snuck that in without me even really realizing it, but um, but just let me know if she actually was in the, in the pilot, if she always was there um, at that moment in 1960 when, uh, when anyone goes through the rabbit hole in Lisbon. So before Jake is able to profess his love and get to know her again, uh, he's interrupted by the yellow card man who reminds Jake that it will always end the same way. She will always die. Now the show cheeses it up at this moment. With Sadie, just nothing but smiles and wide eyes. I mean, she's clearly interested in this bleeding, drenched stranger who seems to know everything about her. I mean, I call bullshit on this. Like, he would come across as a psychopath not as some sort of mysterious um kindly man that that seems to know everything about her seriously what if someone who is bleeding from the forehead soaking wet comes up to you and starts spitting out all of these these bits of information on you um i think that you'd be creeped out and you wouldn't want to approach them and yet sadie does um whatever so Listening to the yellow card man, uh, Jake goes back to the present, and he continues to be the crappy teacher that he always was. The only thing that's different here is that he doesn't have his goatee. 
And like any good teacher, he's so mopey at his job that the students have to ask if he's okay. And then he's cheered up by the brain-injured custodian who was just turned down from a promotion. So I'm glad that all of this has turned Jake into the best teacher that he can be. Jake then returns to Jody to be there for Sadie as she wins the Woman of the Century Award. And thankfully, thankfully, they've decided to cast an age-appropriate actress for Sadie and not Sarah Gadon or Gadone in old age makeup. I was very, very worried that if they were going to do this, that, they, that this is what they would do. But thankfully, they didn't. Then old Sadie reads a poem that Deke apparently used to, though we never saw any of evidence of this ourselves, and the poem naturally speaks to Jake's journey. And then Jake takes the dance floor with Sadie, dancing slowly to Sam Cooke. It's nice, it's sweet, but does not pack the same punch because they don't have their song the way that the book did. And this was a missed opportunity, honestly. Why wasn't this song the first song they danced to as they chaperoned? Or the one that they danced to other times? Or any other number of songs that the producers could have come up with? I think it's a huge missed opportunity on their part. And that's it. The door closes on the two on the dance floor and on the adaptation of 11-22-63. So guys, like I said last week, I mean, my thoughts last week didn't really change. Um, I kind of give my summation um, at the end of last week's episode. Um, what worked, I would say, man, guys, the production, oof. I mean, a lot of detail was put into the production here. It looked great this was a great looking show um eight episodes of meticulous detail in the costumes in the cars in the set designs like it looked how it had to look in every place that they went to whether it was dallas whether it was jody whether it was holden um whether it was lisbon um, Lisbon in 2016 in our timeline or Lisbon 2016 in the, the blasted future. I mean, the show looked awesome. And I'm very, very happy with that. I'm also happy with the, the Stephen King Easter eggs, having um, Annette O'Toole, who played Beverly Marsh uh, in the, the 1990 adaptation of It, show up in a scene that was um, basically Dairy Maine. Like, that was a nice shout-out, having um, a 58 Plymouth Fury front and center, having Red Rum, Captain Tripp's Old Sparky mentioned. Uh, these are all... Uh, someone saying, you're my number one fan, or I'm your number one fan. Like, these are all... Like, these are things that need to happen more. I mean, seriously. Stephen King's been writing since 1974. Um, there are so many things that you can populate any... any anything uh if you uh, adapt it um and like i just read from the the quint articles from any cool news um the fact that the 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 shooting draft originally for the the dark tower movie is just peppered with stephen king references i think that that's great um and all of these these easter eggs here i, I don't think that they tracked at all i think that they heighten the experience for a stephen king viewer i mean it's not not so blatant that it takes you out of the moment but it does put a smile on your face um, much in the way that in The Mist by Frank Darabont, when uh, Tom Jane's character, David, is, you know, he works for a studio and he's, you know, he, um, oh, I almost had it. What is, uh, I can't remember the, the famous, uh, uh, the, the famous artist who, who makes those posters, Drew, not Straczynski. It's going to bother me. I'm going to, as soon as I'm done talking here, I'm going to remember what it is. But uh, 
but uh but the the fact that he's that kind of he's that kind of artist and he's he's doing one for the the dark tower that's awesome you know like that's such a nice little moment and i wish that there was more like those in stephen king adaptations um i know that there's been mentions of shawshank and castle rock and blah 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 but um but i like the fact that uh, 112263 i think did it more than any other adaptation that i've ever seen before um and could have done more um, but I really liked with what they did there. I thought that that was great. I thought that, uh, between the casting of Chris Cooper and the, the use of Bill Turcott, um, I, I think that the mission of, of trying to determine whether or not Lee was working alone and, um, the importance of stopping him from killing, uh, JFK, I thought that it was done very, very well. I, I think that that they chose to make that the focus. I'm going to get to that in a little bit, but how they chose to do it, I thought that it was done very, very well. The casting, kind of, and I'm going to get back to that in a little bit, but I thought that the casting was great. Um, Sarah Gadone, I don't know how, I, I don't know how to pronounce her name. I think that she's the MVP here. Um, I thought that she was inspired casting as Sadie. Who, who just, I mean, this this woman, this actress, I mean, she just turned it, whatever that it is, you know, that intangible X factor, and she turned it on in every scene she was in. Like I said earlier, I mean, when she meets him again at, at the diner and she's all wide-eyed and smiles, I mean, like, how can you not fall for that if you're Jake? Um, but she also had strength when she needed to, and I, I felt that she had the acting chops to be able to pull off more I think that the, 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 the screenwriters could have given her more to chew on and make her more of that fully fleshed character that she was in the books, but any failings that the, uh, the character in the adaptation had had nothing to do, I don't believe, um, with the actress who I think was dynamite in the role. Um, fans of this podcast will know that I believe that the Jake and Sadie relationship um, is the end-all, be-all love story that Stephen King has given us. Um, and the fact that this is a love story, and I'll get back to that in a little bit, um, was predicated on the fact that you needed two characters or two actors to, to be able to play off each other, um, and have sparks fly. And I believe that in this adaptation, you had, you had one person willing to dance and that was Sarah Gadone who did a phenomenal job. Um, I would say that Daniel Weber um, might have stolen the show as Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, he was, he imbued this role with so many ticks and characteristics and idiosyncrasies that you, every scene he was in, like, he, he just crackled. It was incredible. Um, I loved, loved watching how uh, these, like, uh, these scenes, he, he did such a great job in this role. Um, he and, and actually, this is another example of why I thought aspects of this adaptation were good, was that we got out of Jake's head. It wasn't just a Jake POV. We, we got to see the POV from other characters, specifically Oswald, which was very important to show the reasons why a person would put himself in that position of killing the President of the United States. You don't necessarily side with him or feel sympathetic to his plight, but you understand his twisted rationale in that moment, um, and he becomes less of this boogeyman 
because um, like I said in the in the book, like he does transform for a moment. He's this like demon, and I'm glad that that is removed entirely, and he's just a man, a very very flawed man, um, who believes that he was doing something great in that moment. And from his relationship with his mother, um, to his wife, to his child, like you get a full picture of Lee Harvey Oswald played by Daniel Weber, who honestly probably should be nominated for an Emmy Award. His role in the performance was that good. Um, you know, I mean, and if it was, the, if the entire show was just about him, uh, I think that it, it, it would have elevated the, the, the show entirely. Because um, it was fascinating. Every time he was on screen, it was fascinating. He was great. He was fantastic. Um and it's just too bad that other actors weren't able to, to rise to uh, the levels that, that he was at. I mean, he was playing on a completely, completely different playing field than anybody else on the show. I mean, and that's even including, uh, like, Chris Cooper, who also was great. And, you know, I mean, Chris Cooper, you know, is given one of those roles where you're able, you know, you get a veteran actor that comes in, it's able to shine, not really do much, but just kind of give what that actor is expected to do. Um and Chris Cooper was great, uh, but really, it was just Daniel Weber. Daniel Weber was the man. T.R. Knight, uh, as Sadie's ex-husband, uh, you know, like, he played crazy, like, nobody's business. Like I said, I really liked how remote he was, and but intense at the same time, how polite he was, but dangerous. I, I liked his balance of insanity and politeness. Um, and unpredictability and manners. Like, it was very weird, very off-putting, very unsettling. Um, you know, he could have just played, you know, your, your, your typical psycho, but he didn't. Um, and he could have played, like, a sicko pervert. And he was, but that wasn't the... That wasn't the thrust of who he was as a character. I, I was very, very impressed with that interpretation of the character. So, guys, I mean, I just... Through and through, um... And I, oh, uh, the actress that played, uh, I can't remember her name, I don't have the notes off the top of my head, um, who played uh, Lee's mother also, um, rocked it. I mean, like, and Marina, like, everyone was good. Everyone on this show was good. And then we had James Franco. Which is too bad. Because there were moments where I, I was pro-Franco. But guys, um, he wasn't able to pull it off in the end, I don't think. I, I did not buy his love um, for Sadie. I didn't buy um, his anguish. I didn't, I didn't buy his story. I didn't buy it. I just feel like Jake, I mean, when he arrives in the dystopian future, I feel like the man that arrives at that moment should just be inherently different from the man that set off on the path in the first place. And he didn't seem that different to me. I mean, goatee aside, um, he, he just didn't seem that different as, as a person. Um, he just still seemed kind of like Jake. And then when he goes back to the present and he's still a shitty teacher, like it's nothing has changed for this character. Um, I don't feel like he went on a journey um, I think that part of that's in the script, but I think that also that's part of what Franco did not give to the character, which is too bad because I feel like Franco can be weird enough and be, um, 
don't know. I, I think that Frank. I don't think that he's a bad actor. I just don't think that he gave a great performance here. The the, the performance that's necessary to to sell an everyman traveling back into the into the past and being tasked with stopping Lee Harvey Oswald and um, falling in love and making a choice. I I I don't think that he he sold any of these weighty emotions and conflicts. Um, I didn't see it. I didn't see it in the performance, um, and it's really, really too bad. Uh, you know, I wonder, someone like Daniel Weber, with as good as he was as Lee, what could he have done if he was in the role of, of, uh, of Jake? I would have liked to have seen that. And also, what didn't work, um, Jody. Uh, look, you know how I feel about Jody if you listen to my review of the book and other episodes. I mean, this was the heart. I mean, this is where Jake found himself. In the book, he was George Amberson. Here, he was Jake Amberson. Um, he was able to redefine himself and just become himself, his best self. Um, you know, what Wire Man said in, uh, in Dumaki when... Um, I can't remember the, the the main character's name, but when the main character is able to to paint Wireman and Wireman looks at him and he says, "This was me, maybe in the best hour of the best day of the best year of my life." That is what Jody was for Jake, and we didn't get to see it. Um, and like the listener email at the top of the episode, where um, you know we we talked about the fact that in the book, the the of mice and men was such a significant plot, and it was reduced to a throwaway sentence here. But I mean. And don't give me the sentence because that's just that's just lip service to to what was a significant aspect of this character as uh, as someone going through an arc where he is an influential person in and out of the classroom here helping to shape one person's life at a time and just showing how much he cared about this town and we didn't get it we didn't get that here in this adaptation but that's really what it was all about so when in this adaptation in this episode when he's talking to the yellow card man he's saying i don't care about i don't care about jfk i just i want sadie i don't buy it and that is not on franco that is on bridget carpenter and the producers and the, and the the writers for failing to put the character over the plot and jody was a character and the characters living in jody the setting should have been the focus and the focus here was always um the assassination and stopping assassination and that was the that was the joy of reading the the book was that you think that you're going to get this plot heavy roller coaster ride and you realize that no it's not that at all i mean it was just a mechanism to really tell a very character-based story about love and life and just being in the moment and, and letting life wash over you and, and being a part of a community and, and being everything that, that Stephen King believes in. And, and none of that was present here in this adaptation. And it's really, really too bad. And like I said, when, when I started this review, the fact that Bridget Carpenter, who had worked on Friday Night Lights, a show that that's what it was all about. That's what six, six seasons of Friday Night Lights was all about. That's what I expect about a small a small uh, Texas town and about the lives that lived in it and how they, they interacted with each other and built each other up and, and played off each other and went through crises but were able to get through it because they believed in their town of Dillon, Texas, and they believed in each other. And I felt that they that Bridget Carpenter would be able to take that and, and take Dillon and just transplant it in Jody. And we didn't get it. But if you if you feel as though you didn't, 
get that and and you did want it out of 11 2263 just go watch friday night lights because it's it's all about this high school and the, the people that that live in this high school whether it's uh coach or whether it's tammy taylor or whether it's um any of the football players or anyone anyone in this high school like it's just about they get that friday night lights is able to get that um how a school is an organism and it, it takes on a life of its own with with many different working parts and it's awesome it, and it's incredible and yeah 11 63 failed failed miserably um in all aspects of that as as the high school um and jake as a teacher like it just sucked um in that regard so ultimately i i think that it was a nice it was a nice show um but it wasn't a good show like it looked good but it didn't have the heart that it needed um i think that kind of failed on on multiple levels um i'll never watch it again um but i was glad to watch it i was glad to watch it and review it but it's one that i really wouldn't if anyone said hey should i watch 1122 63 i'd say no just go watch friday night lights that's what i would say all right so like i said the easter eggs here are um uh, Red Rum, Old Sparky, uh, Captain Trips, and that's what I saw in this particular episode. All right, guys, uh, that's all that I have for for this week. And if you have any thoughts, and if there's any Easter eggs that I missing that I missed, uh, write to Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. And may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week, where M O O N spells Stephen Kingcast. Mm -hmm.